Scripture in James chapter 5. We'll pick up there in James 5, verse 1. The passage that we come to this morning is quite interesting for several reasons. But the one that really jumps out and grabs you and gets your attention as you initially read through the text is the fact that the first six verses don't really seem to belong with the last five verses that we're going to cover. We're covering verses 1 through 11. And as you'll see... James uses a different tone in the first verses than he does in the latter, moving from a harsh tone to a more gentle tone. There is, to some degree, a different goal in mind, issuing a prophetic kind of judgment in the first part, and then moving to a note of pastoral comfort in the end. There's also a different application uh, in, in the first than there is in the last. So there's not really any expectation of a display of the fruit of repentance in the first part of this passage. But in the second part of the passage, there is this hopeful expectation of genuine faithfulness. And all of this makes it feel, when, you, when you're reading through the text, as though James is some kind of awkward or robotic uh, kind of newscaster, you know, who makes those awkward transitions in a news segment from a really sort of somber story to one that's really kind of light and fluffy. You know, those ones where they're like, 14 died in an uncontrollable fire today. Seven bodies are unidentifiable. Cuddly koalas arrived at the zoo today. You know, and I'm like, what? I, I, I don't understand. How do you make that transition like that? Well, that's almost what it seems like James is doing here in this text. But when, when you read through it, though it may sound like this, if, you, if you'll trace James' thought from beginning to end, it becomes clear that these seemingly opposite messages do belong together. Just how? Well, you'll have to stay tuned to find out. Okay. So what we find, what I can tell you here, is that James is, is pulling the, the curtain of eternity back for us, that, that curtain that separates the temporal from the eternal, allowing us to peer into what will one day be. And as he does this, he, he really gives us this robust view of God. It it's, it's, it's helps us, this passage, to, to get a, a bigger view of God because it displays simultaneously both God's transcendence and his imminence, his, his separateness and omnipotence alongside his nearness. So I'm excited to see what the Lord will um, do through his word with us this morning. So let's now look at it, read it, and find what he has for us therein. James 5, starting in verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. 
You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, and until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, be patient, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of the Lord. So this passage that we come to this morning starts with this prophetic judgment. James' use of the phrase, come now, as Rodrigo pointed out to us a couple of weeks ago, it really is the equivalent of that Old Testament prophet's woe oracle. James is delivering a prophetic type of judgment here that the doom of the rich is both awful and inescapable. The apostle cries out to the rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. So so immediately we're struck by the strong use of these verbs that that's, uh, James used to describe how the rich ought to perceive and respond to their destiny. They're not only to weep over what's coming to them, but to howl. And these are, are typical words that the prophets would have used, but, but only here, actually, are they used together, emphasizing the severity of the miseries, James says, awaits them. So, what, what type of misery would induce such pain so as to not just cry but to wail and bellow? Well, he's referring, of course, to nothing other than the wrath of the Almighty God that will be meted out at the return of Christ. How do we know? Well, in verse 2, James refers to the time when these individuals' riches have rotted and their garments are moth-eaten. And this isn't their current state, so, so this is obviously futuristic in its, in its vision here. In the, the, what, what we have here is James pulling back that curtain so that we can, again, peer into what will one day be. This picture becomes crystal clear when we see the connection of the first six verses with the last five verses. Because we see in verse 7, James tells us precisely what day that he has in mind throughout the whole of this passage. And it's the coming day of the Lord. It's at that day, James says in verse 2, that the experience of misery for these rich will be as though the flesh of them is being eaten right off their bones seared and melted away by fire. And what's perhaps most striking about James' words here is that that his statement is definitive, not conditional. 
Meaning that this brutal punishment awaiting these rich is a fixed and certain kind of reality. As surely as Christ will come again, the rich will be subject to this flesh-eating fire of God's wrath. You see, as we read through this declaration to the rich, you'll find no call to repentance or to exercise faith that might save them from this doom that awaits them. You won't even find a command for these guilty to do anything in response to what's been made known to them. Weep and howl, yes, but, but there's, no, there's no moral imperative here that's given to them. So we see here that this, this is actually how this woe oracle that James delivers to them differs from that one just that precedes it in chapter 4. At least there, James gives them a command. You ought to. Not so here. There's only an anticipation of dreadful terror. And this is what helps us to see that James is not actually speaking of believers here at the beginning of this text. And that's helpful because the pressing question on us here is, who are these rich? Particularly in our Western context where everyone is relatively rich. I mean, we need to know who James is, is condemning. Is he, is he talking about everyone who has a certain amount of money or um, someone with a certain debt-to-income ratio or if you have a retirement account? No, none of these. You see, the, the Bible doesn't ever condemn wealth itself. But James does say here that for these rich, their rotted riches, their moth-eaten garments, and their corroded gold and silver are evidence against them on the day of judgment. So, so what is it evidence of? If the God of the Bible doesn't condemn wealth, then, then what does this evidence prove? Well, to answer that, we have to consider what the Bible does condemn, which is always the heart of unbelief. Start to finish, all through the Bible, it's always the absence of faith that God condemns. And James here is saying that money actually has the power to reveal that lack of belief. And it acts as evidence against the faithless on that last day. So what's been true of these rich that their riches would act as evidence against them? Well, James mentions three things. First, they show that they don't believe that there's a coming kingdom, at least one that's worthy of current attention. In verse 3, he says, they've laid up treasure in the last days, which if you'll remember the Sermon on the Mount, which James is steeped in throughout all of his writing, if you remember that Sermon on the Mount, then you'll know that it's exactly the opposite of laying up treasures that Jesus commands us to do. Matthew 6, 19, we read, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So, again, we ask then, wait, does, does Jesus there simply mean that those who have a savings account are destined to endure the wrath of God? Well, no. Rather, if you finish his statement, Jesus sets patting your bank account in opposition to laying up for yourselves treasures in 
heaven. So the issue is not whether or not one has amassed a certain amount of earthly wealth. It's whether you are as invested in the coming kingdom of God as you are the current kingdom of self. This James says these rich are guilty of. The second indictment that James brings against the rich is that of arrogantly thinking that they have no one to answer to. And and they prove this by defrauding their workers of wages. Verse 4 says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. So these rich, James speaks of, are guilty of theft. that They've chosen not to pay what they owe. And in the first century, this was quite easy for the powerful and the wealthy. Those without money had no means of claiming what was owed to them. So the right payment of the worker's wage was almost completely dependent on the integrity of their employer. These wealthy have proven that they are devoid of such integrity. But what's so incredible about what James reveals to us here is that in spite of what the rich prove to believe through their actions, it becomes very clear that God does not stand at a distance from humanity, unconcerned with the transactions of daily life. No, it it says, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And, And this Totally phenomenal reality is what theologians refer to as the imminence of God. It is being fully present and with the creation that he has made. You see, the the transcendence of God is, is his being independent from and over his creation. And it's what gives him the authority to judge and punish the injustices of this world. It's what we spoke of a moment ago as the proclaiming the holiness of God. That is his transcendence but what's more we find in this text is that he not only has this position of authority to do this but but the God who breathed out galaxies and who keeps the cosmos together is intimately acquainted with the feeble cries of the downtrodden the arrogance of these rich may keep them from believing what God has made clear in his word, but their prideful arrogance will, will serve as no excuse when the Lord vindicates those who have suffered under their oppression. They think that because they answer to no earthly authority that they are accountable to no one, but James warns of just how wrong they are. The third charge that he brings against the rich that evidences their lack of faith in the word of God is their lifestyle of gratification. There in verse 5, he says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. In contrast to those rich who simply stacked up their wealth, hoping that it would provide them with a means of safety and security, these rich spend their money seeking to satisfy all of their fleshly appetites of comfort and fine living, not realizing that their fate is like the rich man in Luke 16. And while they may indulge themselves in this life, those fleeting 
pleasures they experience will be the fullness, or excuse me, the, the, the full measure of the good that they will ever know. James' final words to these rich are just a summation of their guilt. He says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Either directly or indirectly, these individuals have oppressed and taken advantage of the defenseless in such a way that he says they have taken their life. And what's hard to miss about what James lays out here is that money acts in this life as a concrete expression of your faith in the promises of God given in the gospel. This specifically that there will be a day of judgment when we're called to account for what the Lord has entrusted to us. The way you get your money, the motivation for making money, what you do with your money, it, it all says something about what you believe. And as they have violated God's intention for earthly wealth, these rich have proved not to believe the gospel promises. So like a news anchor giving the final line of a sobering story that's traced out the right, unrighteousness of these rich, James states their guilt plainly so that the, the weight of it can hang over them. You have taken the life of those for whom the Lord has given his life. And it's from this same reality of this coming day of judgment that these rich will answer on. It's from that same reality that James has just used to pronounce this prophetic judgment that he's now able to provide a note of pastoral comfort for the weary believer. In fact, we see with the use of the word therefore in verse 7 that it's not even primarily to the wicked that James has revealed this future punishment of the unjust. It's actually for the consolation of the weary that James gives this address. In light of the certainty of the return of Christ and his promise to make right what is wrong, James now issues a compassionate call for believers to endure. Gently now, he, he gives believers three exhortations for remaining faithful, and then he gives us a strategy for how to accomplish this. The first exhortation he gives to us is to be patient as we wait for the coming of the Lord. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And he gives us there an analogy of what this patience is like. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Then he repeats his charge. You also be patient. Now, now, several things are interesting about this. First of all, the fact that James, and, and therefore the Lord, acknowledges, he recognizes that enduring to the last day is not easy. That which requires patience, because there's a delayed benefit, is by nature not easy. And I, for one, am, am thankful that the Lord is so, so kind as to acknowledge this here. There are many times I find myself thinking that I'm a, I'm a bad Christian because my mind is flooded with thoughts about how 
long it's going to be until much of the fruit of my gospel labor, labor is going to be manifest. I find myself flooded with thoughts about how long it's going to be before those who scoff and demean are confronted with the depth of their offenses. And I feel bad for feeling like this at times. But the fact is, it's not wrong to think that way. The Lord has told us here, while he tarries, it will require patience and a long-term kind of perspective if we're going to, to make it, if we're going to hold on to those gospel promises that we've believed. And the, the analogy of the farmer is a fitting one because not only is the task of farming notoriously difficult, but when you consider the ancient farmer, it's all the more analogous for how our anticipation of a coming day of full redemption is to be considered. The ancient farmer, you see, he didn't know the insurance and government programs that our modern farmers know. You know, there, there are safety nets for modern farmers, and if the crop doesn't come in, it doesn't necessarily mean that the family's going to die. Certainly, they hope that the crop comes in, but, but that's not their only hope in life. But when you think of the ancient farmer in that day, how he would sow, often incurring tremendous amount of debt to do so. And he would simply have to wait for nature to deliver what was necessary to bring the harvest. Months and months would pass without any certainty of whether the harvest was going to be weak or wiped out. All that they knew for sure was that this was their one hope for most in that culture, if the harvest didn't come in, the family would not make money. The family could not trade. The family wouldn't eat. This was their only hope. This was a matter of life and death. The farmer would carry with him throughout the entire season the, the lingering question, has all my toil been in vain? So you can imagine after months of hoping and praying, the thrill and satisfaction of the farmer on the day when the harvest comes in. And this, brothers and sisters, this is what we must keep in mind. It's not for the sake of virtue that we're instructed as Christians to be patient. We're not just patient for patience' sake. We're not just patience to, patient to develop some kind of better character. No, you see, our patience is aimed at something. It's an anticipatory kind of patience. Of, sure and, of a sure and certain day when Christ will come again and make all things new. And we must keep this aim of our patience, this substance of our hope in clear view. Because if we don't, then we're going to be distracted and disparaged as we wait for that final day. Which, no doubt, is James' goal in pressing the importance of patience on us. But patience isn't all that James says we need. Next, he exhorts us to establish our hearts. That is, he desires that believers would strengthen their hearts. And this is set in stark contrast, obviously, to those whom he said in verse 5 were fattening their hearts. 
by their continual diet of self-indulgence and luxury. It's clear in this text that gratifying our self-centered desires and just trying to get through life as smoothly as possible does not make for a strong heart of faith that will actually be able to endure into the last day. Self-satisfaction does not make for strong believers. The apostle tells us that the coming of the Lord is at hand. And we don't want to be like those who are found weak and flabby in the faith. We should want to welcome his coming with confidence as we have by grace endured patiently. But this takes effort. If if a heart is fattened then by self-indulgence, then establishing your hearts requires us to garner up all of our spiritual energy and daily deny ourselves those things that would distract us from a more intentional pursuit of holiness. This is what's expected of us. This is the norm of the Christian life. But though this expectation is laid on us, don't miss the encouragement, weary brother or sister, James gives this charge in light of the fact that the coming of the Lord is not far off. In fact, he says it's at hand. It is near. This is the perspective of the believer. Does it require patience to endure? Yes. Have we been waiting for that day for 2,000 years? Yes. But remember, the Lord does not count slowness as we count slowness. According to Peter, a couple of thousand years is like a couple of days to the Lord. So, there's that. But he has left us with this promise that he is coming soon. So establish your hearts for that day. The last exhortation James gives honestly seems a little bit out of place in his line of thinking. At first glance, it just feels a little bit awkward in the text. Look there at verse 9. He says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. He says, or excuse me, he's been calling for these faithful believers to patiently endure as they experience the hardships and the difficulties of life in a fallen world. So is he now turning the tables to try to point out some sort of Sin in the life of these believers? Some sort of deficiency in their life? Or, or, or is he saying that, that as they endure these injustices, that, that they're not right, that they should not complain about the injustices that are done to them? I don't, I don't think so. When, when you think about the broader context of what he's been saying, encouraging these faithful, faint-hearted to press into the hope of the gospel as that promised day draws near. It it comes into focus that what James is encouraging them to do is to interact with one another in a way that's altogether different from the way that those in the world interact with one another. With with self-centered hearts that care not about the needs of others, those in the world are are quick to envy what others have. They're, They're quick to claim that they're more deserving than the next guy. They point out the flaws in one another. 
They, they, they pass blame on one another, saying that if such and such was not true of you or your type of people, then I would not be in the position that I'm in. But James says, let it not be so for the people of God. And what needed counsel this is for the people of God. It's completely natural as we engage with this harsh and cruel world around us to to fall into a, a defensive sort of disposition. One that's unnecessarily hostile and, and critical. We can forget when we come together as the people of God that we operate from a different paradigm than the world. A paradigm that places us all in the same position of being imperfect sinners, humbly trusting in the grace of God through the work of Christ to bring to us what none of us deserve. And that shared gospel hope should then enable and motivate us not to grumble against one another, but rather to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. James says that that the true judge is standing at the door. Let let us not then, by our lack of a gospel-centered interaction with one another, give him reason to move towards us rather than those wicked, rich in judgment. Having heard this compassionate call then for believers to endure through James' three exhortations, you might be saying, okay, I, I, I know that I need to do these things, but, but how? how? How do I cultivate patience as I wait for the Lord to deliver me from the ridicule that I receive for my faith? Is there a way that I can get a heart of strength? I, I know that you say to strengthen your heart, but mine's weak. That's the problem. So is there a way to get this heart of strength? Or is there anything that I can do to keep my defensive heart in check so that I'm not grumbling against those that I'm supposed to be laboring toward the heavenly city with? In short, how can I do what James is telling me to do here? Well, thankfully, the apostle gives us a strategy for accomplishing all that he has laid out. He provides us with a a plan for perseverance. It's the plan for perseverance, actually, because for all that he has said, James has one single strategy, and that is to take up your Bible and read. Look at what he says. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So he says, for persevering in persecution, you should take as an example the prophets. It it was their speaking in the name of the Lord that brought harm on them. James' prescription? Go read how they imprisoned and beat Jeremiah. Or, Or read of Daniel's being thrown into the den of hungry lions. Or or his friends being thrown into the fiery furnace. Go read of them. It's by their example that you'll be strengthened. 
It's there that you'll find that the Lord hasn't abandoned you to endure on your own. And James tells us how to simply persevere through the pain of a broken world. He says, for this, just getting through the daily life in a broken world, you should do the same. Go to the Word and consider the faithful patience of other saints. For this, he says, we can expand our contemplation beyond those who met trials just specifically because of their faith. So he points us, for instance, to Job. It wasn't for speaking in the name of the Lord that Job suffered his trials. It was just an amplified version of the life of faithfulness in a sin-ridden world where all is not as it should be, and where Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So we can read, then, of his trials and find encouragement that we're not experiencing something that's foreign to the people of God. We can find confidence that my trials aren't some kind of indication of God's displeasure with me. And let me just be clear here. James does not tell us simply to consider the lives of other believers, other, other faithful believers. I, I would love to sit up here and tell you how I've been encouraged by brothers and sisters in this room who have, as I've watched their lives, they have lived them out in view of the last day. I'd love to tell you about that. And you know, that has its place. But, but James is very specific about telling us where to go. And it's to those saints found in God's Word. Now, I think this is true for several reasons, but James gives us only one, and it's this. When we look to those saints of old, the Holy Spirit in His Word has graciously revealed to us God's purpose for the trials in our life. We're, we're enlightened to one degree or another as to what God's intention was in the hardship toward that saint that we read about. And what we always find is that the trial was the mode through which God communicated greater levels of compassion and mercy toward them. The Lord, in His kindness, uses those times to refine and purify our faith, drawing us nearer to Him than we were before. So, According to James, it doesn't matter if you're experiencing headaches or humiliation. It doesn't matter if you're experiencing ridicule for your faith or radiation treatment for your failing health. James' prescription is the same. Take up the word and find yourself in the company of the faithful who've gone before you and have received their reward. There and there alone, you'll find the strength and motivation needed to endure to that long-awaited day when Christ will glorify our lowly bodies, wipe away every tear, and take away all that we now suffer. And what rich nourishment for the soul there is to be found when we feed off of the bread of His Word and find this there. Until He comes, brothers and sisters. Let me pray for us.